Good morning, um, my name is Emily and I'll be doing the second Bible reading taken from the book of James, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, oh, sorry, verses 1 to 12. Um, you can find this on page 1,268 of your pew Bibles. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without a reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, then, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? This is God's word. Thank you, Emily and Michael, for praying for us. Now, the Christian life uh, should be... Describe as one where there's always progress and growth in godliness, in maturity. And so as we now reflect and allow God to speak to us and his spirit to work in us, that there may be at least a little bit of growth, a little bit more godliness after this. So let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the spirit who dwells in us who works in us to conform us to the likeness of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you will do that as we reflect on these words from you to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you some very personal questions this morning. Ready? What is one sin that no one is ever free from? What is one sin that we all have but do not like admitting to? What is one sin where the more we have, the more we dislike in someone else? What is one sin that makes us so unpopular, unlikable, but yet we are unconscious of it in ourselves? And it affects all of us. Every single one of us, young, old, middle age. It's what has been called the great sin. It's the sin that started the downfall of all humanity. What is it that we all have? It is pride, self-conceit, haughtiness, loftiness, arrogance. Like it or not, we all have it. C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford professor, the author of the Narnia series, he, he called it the great sin and he described it as this. 
He said, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride, unchaste, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every, every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And it is that sin that none of us is ever free from. Now, just in case this morning some of you might be sitting there and you're thinking, I'm not proud. Well, that just confirms it, doesn't it? <laughs> and even as I reflect on my past week and I reflected on my varying emotions, the many experiences that I had just in this past week, I reflected and I thought, how much of the anger, the frustration, the angst, the impatience, the disappointments I felt this past week was because of my pride. And I'd like you to have a go. Just reflect on your emotions and what you experienced just this past week. How much of that was because of your pride? And so this morning, I will be asking you some very personal questions about your heart. In fact, it is God who speaks from his word. And so let's have a look what James says here. Do keep your Bibles open. It is our pattern. We want to be a word-centered church where we're looking down, hearing, but looking down at the word. James chapter 4. First here. James speaks of the problems of the proud. Pride never does anyone good, nor ourselves any good. And so first we see here, it leads to fighting and quarreling. And so James here, he's very straightforward, he's very blunt. He doesn't beat around the bush here. He doesn't, he doesn't call something something else. He calls a spade a spade. And here he's speaking to Christians. You're in the same family. You have the same father. And what does he say? Verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Isn't that interesting? He's not saying here, are there any fights and quarrels among you? He knows that there are. And so his question is pretty straight. What causes the fights and quarrels among you? Between brothers and sisters. Between fathers and sons. Mothers and daughters. Cousins. Friends. The best of friends. Colleagues. Boss. Husbands and wives even, and within the church. So what is it that causes fights and quarrels? Just reflect on the last time you had a disagreement, a conflict, a misunderstanding. Perhaps that was even this past week. Tell me whose fault was it? Just reflect. Whose fault was it? Well, it was the other person's fault. That guy who was a punk. Or that lady just overly sensitive. Or that guy just a bit arrogant. It's their fault. Always their fault. It's interesting, isn't it? And I wonder whether you're a bit like, like me. Every time after a conflict, disagreement, misunderstanding, you rewind the scene in your head. And what are you thinking? You're picking out all their flaws and faults. It's all their fault. Or was that just me? Or was that you too? But what does James say here? Whose fault is it? They come from within, not from without. They come from our own hearts, 
our own desires. They come from the place of pride. I know better. It is my way or the highway. In fact, I'm always right. And so you see that, verses 1 and 2 again. Have a look. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. That is, you want it your way all the time. It's always your way or the highway. But it's not always going to be your way because it's not always the right way or the wisest way or the most loving way. And so what happens? You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Now, do you notice that? You fight so much so that, do you notice that? You even kill. Now, was James exaggerating here? I mean, any one of us died from an argument with our wives or brothers or sisters or friends. Anyone else died just yet? Not yet, because you're still sitting here. But do we ever, ever think and wish in our heart, I wish that person was dead? You've killed them in your heart. You say, I always, if I always stand on my rights, if I think I can never be wrong, if I think I must always have it my way, if I'm never open to compromise, open to reason, trying to understand from their perspective, be in their shoes, what do you call that? You call that pride. It is stubbornness. And who's to blame? We've got ourselves to blame. Not the other person, ourselves to blame. We are our own worst enemy. And what's the other problem of being proud? We go on. Second, pride leads to either no prayers or unanswered prayers. You see, the problem when we are proud is that we think, I can do it on my own. I can sort it out on my own. I'll solve it. It's my problem. I'll solve it. I'll fix it up. So much so that we forget to pray. I mean, how many times has that happened to you? You're, you're Blood is boiling. Your head is hot, red hot. Your heart is racing. You're angry. You're frustrated. You're under intense pressure and stress. You feel no peace. And so what do you do? You get on the phone and you vent. You, 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 you splash out. You tell them of all your anger and hatred. Or you devise ways to fix up the problem. Or you think about who to ban with you to get on your side. And all along, what have we forgotten? To pray. To pray. And you wonder why we don't feel any peace or any comfort or any love from God. Why? Look at verse 2, the second part. You do not have because you do not ask God. And it comes down to pride. And when we do go to ask, they go unanswered. Why? It's because not every prayer is going to be answered by God. You know, prayers like, God, if you can just listen to me and do what I say, God. God's not going to listen to that type of prayer. Or, God, can you help me now in my struggle, but can you fix it the way I want it and in my time? God's not going to listen to that type of prayer. Or, God, can you grant me success just to prove that you still love me? And God's not going to answer that type of prayer. And so you see verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend 
what you get on your pleasures. It's like praying to win the lotto. I don't know how many Christians do that, but how wrong is that to just get more stuff? It's praying that my will be done, not God's will, my will, God, listen to me. And you wonder why God doesn't answer. Is that not pride? But instead, when we do pray, we pray like Jesus. Not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. Please help me, even now, as uncomfortable this situation might be, that you do your will. Your will be done. Please sustain me, Lord, in in the difficult time I am experiencing. Grant me strength, but your will be done in your time. A wonderful prayer that someone shared with me last year. In kindness to me, aware of the pressures and the burdens of ministry, the temptations that I face, the struggles, he said to me me over coffee, and he said, they're praying this prayer for me, and it comes from Proverbs, and it's a wonderful prayer. He goes like this. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? Just enough. Not too much, not too little, just enough. But you see, pride leads to fights, quarrels, unanswered prayers. But here we see it gets worse. See, if my heart is proud, then third we see here, I've set myself up as an enemy of God. It is that serious. It is that ugly and heinous. And it's so countercultural. You see, in our world, in our society, we love the proud. It's good to be proud. I'm so proud of my abilities, my talents, my skills. I'm so proud of my successes, my achievements, my degrees, the letters after my name. I'm so proud of all that I've done. It's me. I mean, the, the world applauds that, but not God. Because why is it so wrong? It's wrong because it fails to recognize God. It fails to recognize God. My abilities, talents, skills, achievements, successes is only because of the kindness of God. And so rather than pride, it is with the thankfulness, gratitude to God. But for the grace of God, I am nothing. So it was C.S. Lewis again who, who said, If your pride causes you to exalt yourself, you are painting a target on your back and inviting God to open fire, and he will. You see, it was pride that made the devil the devil. And God will bring down the proud. And that's what we see here. You see, to be proud is to be self-centered, selfish. Not God-centered like our value, but self-centered. To see what I can get my hands upon, what I can amass and accumulate in this life. Just like what Shakespeare once said in one of his plays, the world is my oyster for me to get and get and get. 
But when our love is for things more than God, we have set God up as an enemy. And James here, look at verse 4, he doesn't hold back. What does he call the people of God? You adulterous people. I mean, just reflect on that language. It is strong language. He's calling the people of God adulterous. You're unfaithful to God. You're cheating on God. Just like a wife cheating on her husband, the people of God were cheating on God. And then we read on, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Which means you can't have your cake and eat it too. Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. And so if I love my car more than God, I've cheated on God. If I love my career, my ambitions more than God, I've cheated on God. If I love my human relationships more than God, if I love my bank account more than God, I've cheated on God. And here now we read, the Spirit of God who dwells inside the believer grieves, even longs and envies that our affections would not be to things, but to God first. And so we see verse 5. Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely. And so to be proud, we've set ourselves up as an enemy of God. And so if the ways of the proud leads to so many problems, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is God's way. And that is the way of the humble. You see, the proud, the proud are always looking down upon others. I'm higher than them, I'm looking down upon them. What does the humble do? The humble looks up and sees there is God above who is greater than me, more powerful than me, more glorious, superior than I am. And so I am humbled. And so verse 6 we see, But he gives us more grace. That is, however terrible or deep our faults, our sins, there is always enough grace to pull us back up. And then we read on, this is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And what do the humble do? They submit to God and not the devil. They resist the devil and not God. And so submitting is, I'm placing myself under God, under his power, his care, his protection, his love. And it is a beautiful thing to be under God, submitting to him. I mean, why would I want to try to sort out my complicated life and relationships on my own? when I can submit to God and lean upon him. It's why we hear that comment quite often around in our church family. Even this past week, I heard it at least half a dozen times. Members from our church just saying, I cannot understand how anyone can do life and live a life without God. I just cannot understand. And why would you? I submit to God. And resisting his, I'm pushing the devil aside. I'm not giving in to his schemes, his temptations, his seduction. I mean, that's how the devil works. He, he lures us in with temporary pleasures, with fleeting gratification, with momentary luxuries. He promises the world, but he leaves you empty and feeling used. You see, when the devil tempts someone to commit adultery, what happens? 
leaves a trail of destruction, only for temporary pleasure. But also what happens? You've been used by the devil. You've been used. The one who's tempted to be greedy. What also happens? You've been used by the devil. And so instead, verse 7, what do we read? Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The reason why even Christians, we fall into the trap of the devil is because we don't resist him. We give in to him. And the reason why we don't feel near God and close to God is because we don't draw near to him. If I continue to justify my sins, nurture my greed, avoid reading scripture for fear I might be exposed, I don't give time to pray to God because I'm too busy, then I'm keeping God at a distance. And then we complain, well, why don't I feel loved by God? It's because we haven't drawn near to him. Look at verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is saying, if you are a Christian, there's no double lives you, you, you can live. Not at all. You're either with God or against him. And if we are with God, we do so with great humility. There is no pride in front of God. There's no gloating when we know who God is. I mean, just to think about what it means for us to be saved by God, for our sins to be washed clean and forgiven, what did that take? In one of the growth groups I joined this past week, one of the members expressed it really well. We have to understand the gravity of our own sins. And when you do, there is no place for pride at all, but only grieving and mourning and wailing. I mean, just to imagine. Imagine if your sins or my sins were so serious, so severe, that it cost another person's life. How would you feel? If your sins caused the death of a fellow human being, you feel terrible. You feel gutted indebted how could i be so bad you'll feel terrible in guilt how can i ever repay but what's the truth our truth is that our sins did cost the life of another but not not just another person the life of the son of god and so if we see how severe and serious our sins are we grieve we mourn we wail there's no arrogance when you stand beside the cross and so that's what we see, verses 9 to 10. Have a look. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You cannot be happy with your sins. Grieve over it. But humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Even if the world looks down upon us, God lifts us up. Even if my sins weigh me down, God lifts me up. The humble is one who submits to God. And the humble is also the one who shows humility to our fellow human beings, to other people. And that's what James goes on to say. And that's why he says, verse 11, Brothers, do not slander one another. That is, don't speak behind someone else's back. Don't try to divide and conquer don't try to get people to side with you and to, to think ill of someone else. 
And to hate the other person is such an ugly thing because it can be so hurtful, especially because it travels around like what? Chinese whispers and it grows and it changes. It gets bigger. It gets distorted. It's untrue. Careless talk hurts lives. And so be careful what we say to one another about one another when they are not there. And I'm sure, myself included, we have all fallen into that mistake. Sometimes we cover it up as a prayer point, but it's really just gossip. Be very careful. Why? James tells us. Because that is to take the place of God as judge. Look at our final verses, 11 to 12. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, we are taught here to show humility towards one another. I'm no better than you, nor are we to each other. We're no better than anyone else. We're sinners saved by grace. And so if I show humility towards one another, then I'm far more generous in my thoughts about them. I'm far more gracious in my thoughts about them. I don't presume upon their intentions, which is often the cause of conflict. We presume as though we know what's going inside that person's heart. We can't see that. We can't see inside each other's heart. And so it's wrong to presume too much. I don't presume that I can see and know everything. You see, in every situation, whatever it might be, there are so many different angles and perspectives, and often we might only see a little tiny bit, but we judge the world by it. We judge everyone by it, but we only see a little bit. Or I don't speculate on what I can't know and don't know. I don't make grandiose presumptions, speculating the worst in people and character, because I can't see into anyone else's heart. And I make sure, this was some wise words I heard, I make sure I don't get baited by gossip and slander. As enticing as it might be, I don't get baited in. Now, I've shared this principle before in one of my previous talks and sermons. A principle I learned at Bible college in first year, and it's a brilliant, simple principle for us all, and that is do not triangulate relationships. Have you heard of that before? Do not triangulate relationships. If any one of us has anything against a brother or sister, don't go and tell someone else so that they might go tell someone else. Hopefully that that person might tell off that other person. That's to create triangles in relationships. It's not the way we deal with things as Christians. Instead, the biblical pattern is clear. If you have something against a brother or sister, what do you do? You give them the courtesy and respect you speak to them directly, gently. Not presuming on intentions, but I'm not sure if you know, but I've been hurt when this was said or this was done. To bring it to them, give them the courtesy and the respect, seeking reconciliation. That's the only way you can reconcile. 
If you go slander, there's no reconciliation there. You just made a, a small problem, perhaps, even bigger because you've involved and you try to get everyone on your side to hate another person. And what do you call that? Pride. You see, that's a principle that we've made clear in our leadership team. On our session, we've made clear no triangulating of relationships. Anything, go direct. In our board of management, we've made that clear. No triangulating of relationships. Go direct. We show humility towards one another. And so it's perhaps worth reflecting. The last conflict you experienced and you've been in, was it because of this problem? Because of pride. The ways of the humble is submission before God and humility towards others. And so how do you feel after a passage like this? Don't think anyone can stand tall and proud anymore. James raises what is so deeply personal. But he reminds us, the humble will be lifted up. And is that not the way of salvation? When we humble ourselves before God, I am a filthy, wretched sinner. Save me. And God will. God will lift us up. And was not humility the way of our Lord Jesus Christ himself? In our first reading, if Jesus in full glory from heaven would descend, become a man, but not just that, become a servant of human beings. He made, and, and worse, to even that image in, in, in the Gospels where Jesus puts on the apron, gets on his knees, and cleans the filthy, dirty feet of his disciples. That's mind-boggling. This is the Lord of the universe on his knees, cleaning the feet of his disciples. But that's our Lord and Saviour. Humble, showing humility even to those he made and created and gave life to. And so if that is our Saviour, how can I be so stubborn as I remember him? Always standing on my rights, never making sacrifices, unwilling to forbear others in love, you see, the pursuit of disciples is to be humble like our Saviour. And as I was reflecting on this passage this past week, it just helped me to see even more strongly, more clearly, how wrong it is when Christians fight. Because, you see, we're part of the same family with the same Father in heaven. As a father myself to three kids... If my kids are bickering, I'm not going to take sides. In fact, I want them to resolve it, to fix, fix it up. But often when Christians fight, we don't want people to take our side. We want God to take up. God's not going to take sides. In fact, God wants us to be on his side. It is good to remember God's side, not our side. Well, here are some questions for you to reflect on if you are currently in a situation or when you do become uh, come into a situation. To test whether your heart is humble, two questions. Do you want that other person to fall and to fail? And will you gloat over it when they do? That will test your heart. 
Or do you wish them well, even though they may have hurt you deeply? And do you pray for them still? That will test your heart. See, what C.S. Lewis again, he said, when Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. Our careless lives set the outer world talking and we give them grounds for talking in a way that throws doubt on the truth of Christianity itself. I mean, let none of us be guilty of that. But instead, let us live lives always to the glory of God because we are humble. Now, having said all of this, and what a confronting passage. I am no better than you, nor are you any better than me or each other. We are all sinners saved by grace. Me beggars telling another beggar where to find forgiveness. And so I'm aware of my own heart. And so this is what I do to make sure that my heart is always in check. I say a prayer, a daily prayer that I learned from Peter Adam. It goes like this, and we will pray it. Make me the person you want me to be. Prepare me to do the good works you want me to do, and help me to do them. May I live today by these words of Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Today I offer myself to you to love, worship and serve you. Please help me to serve you today in all that I plan to do and in the unexpected opportunities you send. And here we go. Please increase my proactive love, friendliness, tolerance and generosity and my sympathy, patience and forbearance. And may this day be the best day of knowing, loving and serving you and living for your glory through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.